Hi, this is Vanessa Marshall. I play Harrison Dula on Star Wars Rebels, and you're listening to Star Wars Bookworms. Enjoy. Even men like Talon Card occasionally make mistakes. This is the Chimera. Launch the attack. Time to go to work. You won't let me get killed, will you? Is that what I was supposed to be doing here? I should have brought my lightsaber. Welcome everybody back to a very special episode of Star Wars Bookworms. It's episode 53 and on this episode it's all about an interview with a very special person. We talked about it in our last episode. We are interviewing Pablo Hidalgo. But before we get into that, Aaron, how are you? I'm doing good. How are you? Good. Have you read any Star Wars stuff lately? Um, yeah, I have. <laughs> Seems <laughs> what like have you, What have you read? Um, I'm still kind of, you know, just picking through like the visual dictionary. Uh, I'm finding myself picking it back up and just re- rereading different parts of it. I actually haven't made it all the way through the Force Awakens novelization yet, so I've been kind of going through that. And then jumping back into the Legends universe, I um, picked up Fatal Alliance, which is an old Republic novel. Um, so kind of working my way through that as well. So I have a few different Star Wars things that I'm kind of doing all at the same time cool yeah i really haven't had time to read anything lately so i'm still picking my way through before the awakening like i'm kind of about halfway through it or so but other than that that's about it just really haven't had time so do you want to just jump into this interview yeah i think we should uh share it with the people all right so For your listening enjoyment, here is our just under about an hour chat with Pablo Hidalgo from Lucasfilm. All right, we are here with Pablo Hidalgo, brand communications manager at Lucasfilm, also a member of the Story Group, author of The Essential Reader's Companion, The Force Awakens Visual Dictionary, the upcoming Star Wars propaganda, History of Persuasive Art in the Galaxy, and a lot of other stuff. Welcome, Pablo. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, we're really happy to have you. This is, uh, you're kind of our, I wouldn't say you're our white whale, but you're definitely one of those that we were targeting <laughs> that we wanted to get on the show eventually. Uh, that's the finest compliment I've ever received. <laughs> that you're a white whale. That that's... I'm a white whale, yeah. <laughs> no, I said you weren't a white whale. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I meant, that I'm not. That's, the, that's a great compliment. So, I'm not yeah. even sure I know what that phrase means, but all right. <laughs> it's a Moby Dick reference. Ah. Just roll with it. <laughs> So I kind of just jumping right into it. I heard that you were the guest of honor on a Star Wars cruise or a Star Wars Day at Sea cruise. That's right. I got to go uh, on the Disney Fantasy uh, seven days into the Caribbean. And one of those days was Star Wars Day at Sea. And so I got to be a guest and tell all the folks who crammed into that Buena Vista Theater all about the making of this visual dictionary. So it was a pretty sweet gig. I mean, um, I had never been on a cruise before, so this was a, my wife and I went, and, and we had a great time. So a uh, couple the idea of talking about Star Wars to a bunch of people who love Star Wars and add a cruise onto that, it's hard to complain. Well, and Disney cruises in and of themselves are an experience. And I'm sure it's, you saw the, the, fisher, the fish line that people had on their door, you know, where people oh, yeah. were hanging stuff and things like that. I just think it's really cool. Did you get to meet any of the fans and everything while you were there? Oh, yeah. We had open Q&A, and we talked there. And, and sure enough, you know, people after the Q&A session or after the, the talk, a lot of people really 
nicely came up to me afterwards and I would run into the, the, the same types of uh, folks over and over again. Like, you know, it's a, it, it's essentially you're staying at a, a deluxe grand hotel on sea. So there's a lot of people, but you see a lot of the same people over and over again. And, and uh, it was great. And I, I'd recognize some people from past celebrations and past events. So uh, the Star Wars community is, you know, it's global and including the sea. Did you get to see the little stuffed chicken, chickafant, while you were there? I did. They were one of the first. Uh, well, I didn't see the actual stuffed chicken, but I know the folks <laughs> behind it. Uh, uh, they were some <laughs> of the first people I actually saw uh, on the cruise. So, so yeah, there we go. Uh, uh, just connected by Star Wars fandom, no matter where you go. That's awesome. They actually sent me, you know, the name tags that they make at like Star Wars weekends and in the parks with the Arbesh, you know? Oh, yes. They they did one for Day at Sea, and they actually had one made for me with my name on it. So I, because I collect them, all the name tags from the different ones. So I have one of them actually sitting right here in front of me. Oh, that's so, great. Very yeah, cool. and, and obviously, I mean, we, you know, Disney knows uh, Star Wars has a huge collector community, and they definitely brought some great items on the, on the cruise. So uh, I'm not a collector myself. But, you know, I've got friends that are, so I picked up some some goodies to bring back. Well, since you're not a collector, do you have a favorite piece of memorabilia that you that you personally own? And you may not collect the stuff, but I'm sure you have some things. I've got a few things around the house. I, I'm a little bit, uh, you know, picky in the things that because, you know, space is always at a premium. I have all the books. Like I consider myself a collector of books, I suppose, and that takes up most of the space. But um, the 30th anniversary um, Imperial Walker that Hasbro did, we made sure to get that. My wife Kristen, it's her favorite thing in the world, like uh, of Star Wars. She loves the Walkers, so I got that version as well as the uh, Galactic Heroes version to be its little, little puppy. Um, <laughs> so you have the uh, the parent and child Walkers that we prominently display in our living room because how can you not? So a couple years ago, I think it's two or three years ago now, I actually had the privilege of getting a tour of the Lucasfilm offices. Oh, and, that's right. And you happened to be the person to give me that tour. And one of the things that kind of surprised me or maybe I wasn't expecting was just all of the the cool like props and matte paintings and all the stuff kind of just all around. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have kind of like... You know, in the offices there, do you kind of have a favorite piece that you that you like there? There's a lot. I mean, it's hard to pick, but I think the one that everyone tends to gravitate towards is the big portrait of Vigo, the Carpathian from Ghostbusters 2, because it's you know it's it's exactly as it is in the movie, a giant uh, painting of this uh, you know ancient warlord who then possesses the painting itself. So that tends to make a really good really good photo op. One of my favorites though is there's a I guess it's it's taller than 12 inches. It's maybe about 14 or 15 inches, maybe close to 18. But anyway, it's the articulated uh, stop-motion rocketeer puppet uh, standing oh, right nice. next to its articulated skeleton for motion control, stop-motion shots. And, and that's, I mean, that's just fantastic to look at. One of my favorite things as we were walking through there um, was I think we were going down a stairwell, and there was the ship from Galaxy Quest just kind of hanging there. That's right. They were both ships. It was the uh, the the good guy ship and Saris's bad guy ship right next to each other. So, uh, creating a little diorama in their stairwell, as it were. So we have a couple of like little just fan nerd questions that pop up in our heads all the time. Things we ponder. So maybe you know, maybe you don't know. But 
<laughs> so as far as dark side users go, and this is definitely a question for me because I'm a dark side person, but Darth Maul and the Inquisitor have those like yellow sort of red eyes, and then some characters don't, like Kylo Ren and Asajj Ventress. They don't have the yellow reddish eyes. Is that a significant thing, or is that just a kind of coincidence? <laughs> I think it's really more a cinematic choice as opposed to anything where we figured out what the appropriate blood chemistry is, or what you know, <laughs> what, what your appropriate dark side infection is to cause this. I mean, in Episode Three, it was very much used to show Anakin at his depth because he has it. Um, I mean, we really see him with it during the, uh, uh, when he takes out the separatist leadership, but then later when Padme rushes up to him on Mustafar, he doesn't have it. And, and we don't see it again until uh, he's actually on the shore of the lava river burning. So it tends to be more of a cinematic hook. You know, it's like uh Dooku is primarily characterized as being more charismatic and to give him those eyes would run against that. Um, so, but you know, I have a feeling that some there's some Clone Wars examples where the we push the the color of his eyes a little bit more to the yellow in order to to sell a particular cinematic moment. That makes sense. That, that makes more sense. <laughs> that was our Rebels Recon esque question for the day. <laughs> we, we know you get hit with those kind of questions all the time. We had to we had to at least slip one in. Sure, sure. <laughs> the book that you have done the most recently is the visual dictionary for the force awakens. Um, with that book, how does a project like that kind of land on your plate? Is that something that you go out and lobby for? Cause you want to write that? Is that something where they're just looking for someone? It kind of, in a way gets assigned to you. Uh, it's a little bit of both. I mean, I've been a fan of the DK books for a long time and, and I think I've made it known that I've had interest in, in working on a project like this. Um, but in this case, it was really a matter of expediency, uh, coupled with the, the amount of time required to turn this book around and the security concerns of not exposing the developing story of The Force Awakens to too many people outside of Lucasfilm. Uh, I was just sort of in the best position to do this book on the schedule and uh, with the detail that was required. Um, so I, I'm very happy with the way it all turned out. And, uh, and I, I hear that DK is, because uh, in, in the past, there'd be more time to do these things. Uh, you know, we, we had the, the, the cycle of three years between movies and, um, and that's been compressed more or less. Uh, and, and we're just, everyone's relearning their way to doing things because you, you settled into a pattern with, with the way George would do these things. And now, uh, there was a whole lot of new learning to be done. So it was in this case that, um, DK felt that they could rely on the stuff that I knew about the movie because I, I had inside access to it. That makes sense. So as far as the preparation for a book like this, you obviously had read the script for the film. You knew what was going to happen, but were you, were you privy to like imagery or filming or anything like that for you to be able to prepare for this? Oh, absolutely. I, I, one of the things, I mean, by virtue of my being here at Lucasfilm, yeah, I had I had access to. Uh, we screened the dailies as the footage would come in from from Pinewood. I visited the set in uh, before production actually started, and um, you know ILM is just down the hall essentially. So if we if we had questions that needed to be answered by any sort of uh, branch of production, we had the they they were, you know, they were a phone call away if that. And we uh, we 
interviewed Jason Fry on Fangirls Going Rogue. We were actually talking about DK and about how DK kind of does things. And I was curious if they did this with you, where the visual people would put all the images down and then they'd kind of use these lead-in lines and they'd just put them wherever they thought it looked good. Did they do that with you? Because there's a, there's one on the Poe Dameron page where the label is tousled hair after <laughs> his helmet was taken off. Like, was it is it that same kind of process? Absolutely. The uh, the art department, the art directors of the book pick the callouts, and most of the time, I I don't have any changes, but. Um, it gets challenging because like people have noticed that I, I seem to be inordinately obsessed with hair and hairstyles in this book. And that's because uh, there would always be a call out pointing somewhere, you know, above the head and shoulders of the character. So we'd have to fill that space for, for layout purposes. And I would end up just like inventing more and more things. The, the most ridiculous one is there was a, a, a call out pointing to Kylo's finger. And I, you know, I had nothing to say about Kylo's finger. So I just kind of wrote in the abstract, you know, uh, was it, uh, I forget, uh, accusatory finger underscores unquestioned authority or something like that. Something ridiculous <laughs> like that. And uh, they liked it, and I thought it was funny, so it stayed in. So there, there's a lot of fun stuff like that. Um, the other thing that was tricky is the layout team, security was so tight that they only worked with low-res image assets, so they couldn't necessarily see. Like, they'd get a full picture, a full-page picture of a, of a first-order flamethrower stormtrooper, right? And it would be an extremely pixelated, low-resolution graphic that then they would point, uh, have these call-outs, these annotations pointing to things that they kind of squinted and thought might be something. And the way that it worked is ultimately, when it came time to substitute those images with the final graphics, the art directors flew here to San Francisco and did it here, as opposed to sending files there. Um, and because I had access to some of the imagery here in San Francisco, I could tell them, like, you know, the, the thing that you think you're pointing to, point it a few hairs, like, up, because that's going to the, uh, the hose of this, you know, the flamethrower, as opposed to just, like, an empty space on a character's knee. So there was a little bit of back and forth in that regard, but it goes to show you that, um, you know, uh, some of this was a little happenstance. A lot of this was driven by design, and uh, there were discoveries to be made. Were there things in the dictionary that you kind of came up with yourself, like facts, character names, um, or is a lot of that stuff already set before you even start writing? Uh, a lot of it was we got to, to create for the purposes of the book, but we realized, actually, to be fair, we were creating it for the purposes of everything. You know, it wasn't just for this book. It's just this book was a place where a lot of it first uh, surfaced, you know. Um, but what I made a point of doing in this case which authors of past visual dictionaries may not have had the opportunity to do this as well as they wish to be able to do this. But um, I made a point of, of talking to the filmmakers, talking to the departments who were behind the creation of these things and asking if they had a point of view about it. Um, this was really helpful in the case of the creature department with all the aliens that are in Maz's castle. I made a point of having this lengthy conversation with Neil Scanlon, and we went through one by one all the creatures and say, what can you tell me about this guy? What can you tell me about this guy? What were you thinking when you made this guy up? Um, so that it really properly reflects what the original artists had in mind. And when I did that, that was actually not for the visual dictionary. It was just to make sure that we had that information captured. What's the timing like on this as, as related to the release of the movie? It was, I can't remember when it started. My guess is it probably started in uh, February or March of 
maybe 2015. And then, oh, wow. and then if the due date was October, like everything, no, the due date was earlier that it had to go to printers in October. Like that was our last chance to make any changes. So publishing lead times are pretty long. Uh, they, they probably started layout before I ever, well, they, I know they did start layout before I ever started writing it. So I may be wrong on the start date, but I know that the drop dead end date for any changes that had to be made were, was in October. And that answers one of the most common questions that I get about this book is like, um, there's no, you know, clear imagery of Snoke, for instance. And that's because there was no finished imagery of Snoke to be put into the book at the time that the deadlines arrived. Now, did you keep in mind or did it even occur to you that people might use this book as sort of an encyclopedia, like post-movie, to go and find things like after they've seen it the seventh time, like me, and I'm like, oh, I have a question about this. Let me go to my visual dictionary and look it up because that's I know a lot of people have been doing that. Had that occurred to you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we knew early on the kind of things that would be present in the movie and the kind of things that wouldn't be, but it was all being developed at the same time. So a lot of the backstory in terms of how the First Order came to be the First Order and how the Resistance came to be the Resistance and things like that, we as the story group uh, with the filmmakers sketched that out but knew that very little of it would actually surface in, in, in the course of the movie because the movie is really more the personal journey of the characters. Um, so all that stuff is deep background. We were able, we knew that a book like this and other publishing would be able to surface that deep background more to the, the forefront. The, one of the pages I think is the most interesting to me, and it's sort of because I'm obsessed with maps and stuff, is the atlas at the beginning. Because now we know that the original essential atlas that was written by Dan Wallace and Jason Fry sort of isn't, uh, I don't know, I guess appropriate anymore. <laughs> and so I've been needing a new layout of planets. So that was very helpful for me. But it was also interesting to see where Starkiller Base was in regards to Hosnian Prime. Mm-hmm. Because I was trying to figure out how the heck it does that without blowing other stuff up in between itself and the planets. And so when y'all were developing that, did you figure out where everything was going to go or was that in conjunction with some other people? No, I, I, I did the first real work of putting all these points on a map um, and comparing it to the developing script to make sure that it made sense. Uh, a good example of, of something that changed um, in the process of making the movie was there was a scene, the scene where Han and Chewie get the Falcon back, um, or they're back in the Falcon, and they're asking Finn and Ray, uh, where'd you find this thing? And they say, Jack who? And, and Han says to Chewie, I told you we should have double-checked. Well, in the original script, he said, I told you we should have double-checked the Outer Rim. And I gave a note to, to J.J. and Lawrence Kazan saying, that line doesn't make much sense because the Outer Rim is such this enormous expanse. It's not a thing that you check and then double-check. It has to be a bit more localized. So I gave him a suggestion of, that should be the Western Reaches. And that's based on looking at the maps that Jason Fry and Dan Wallace created. So... Lo and behold, they took that suggestion and put it in the movie. So it was established that Jakku is indeed in the Western Reaches. And what that actually ended up doing is opening up all sorts of interesting storytelling opportunities and reinforcing this background that we were developing as far as the backstory of Episode 7. If we knew Jakku was in this particular area of space, 
that told us some interesting things about what the Battle of Jakku might have been like, where the survivors of the Battle of Jakku may have fled to, and where the First Order was percolating in the unknown regions during all this time. So these little points, it was just one line of dialogue. Compare that, add that to a map, and all of a sudden we start getting this scaffolding, this this sort of uh, backdrop and structure to what our backstory is going to be. Yeah, and so and that makes me wonder. So from the last, not the last episode of Rebels, but the uh, the Lasat episode of Rebels, where they go on that edge of the big furry cloud, yeah, you know, and they go through that. If we were looking at the map that comes out of the Visual Dictionary, is that like right on the edge of the? I'm not going to say where that is yet because people have noticed, and I know it's frustrating to some, that we have yet to tell the world where Lothal is on the Star Wars galaxy map. And oh, that's, that's and that's because, you know, we're, we're keeping that in case we need to make any changes for storytelling opportunities. Um, we have internally it kind of sketched out where we think it is, but until we're 100% sure that we don't need it to be somewhere else because the story gives us an idea to do that, um, we're not going to publish its placement. And that's an interesting, you know, development in the way we do things. As much as the visual dictionary fills in a lot of gaps, what I don't want to do is fill in a gap that immediately erodes the opportunity to tell future stories. Uh, and I think we kind of overdid it, overdid that in some cases in the past, uh, where in the interest of telling some deep, interesting backstory, you've suddenly eaten up thousands of years of continuity uh, with little in return, you know? So uh, it's, it's a tricky balance, but um, I think we're, we're, I like the way we're approaching it this time. Are there any like fun facts that you can elaborate on? I know in the book there was something that I found really interesting, the fact that Han became a, like a racing pilot at some point after Return of the Jedi, uh, which I thought was very interesting. Is there anything like that that you could elaborate a little bit more on? Uh, a lot of that stuff came out of, um, you know, as, we, as Episode 7 really, as The Force Awakened really took shape and we understood where these characters were going to be, uh, at, at a story retreat, us at the Lucasfilm Story Group figured out, okay, well, we now know what the end point is for uh, Seven, and we know where we left off in Six, so let's start mapping the trajectory of these characters' lives in broad strokes so we understand uh, you know, wh- where they've been and what they've been up to. And that development of Han uh, and you know, answering the question, what does a retired peacetime Han look like? Uh, knowing that he's going to end up back in the scoundrel form that we know and recognize him from the original trilogy, but it's like it's not like he's been doing that for 30 years. Um, so what does peacetime Han look like? What what would he get into? And we kind of came came to this idea, and it's an idea that's going to surface in other storytelling that takes place in between um, six and seven stuff like that. Where we'll be able to to mine more fully than just a throwaway line in the visual dictionary. Well, and one of the interesting points for me is that you guys actually highlighted the little X-Wing pilot doll that Ray has in her at-at-home mm-hmm. in here. Was it y'all's choice to include that, or was that a layout thing? It was largely layout, but I think we all – the way it worked out is uh, we came up with a page map, what we call it. It's basically a book map, a breakdown of what each spread was going to be. And that helped us determine, you know, the more or less the shape of the content of the book. So once we knew that there'd be a two-page spread about Ray's life as a scavenger, um, it became easy to zero in on what are the kind of photography that populates that area. And 
the production department um, for the movie took detailed photos as well as 3D scans of everything. Like we have so much reference. And so that's such a compelling image that instantly tells you a story about Ray. And that's always been sort of the, uh, I mean, that's, that's been the charm of the visual dictionary in that every single prop tells a story. Uh, and it, it seems like that one told a really compelling one that you could just get just looking at it, you know? I know one of my big questions after leaving the movie was, you know, who is that old guy at the beginning? You know, who's that old guy that Poe Dameron was talking to? Because we don't get his name in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and we really don't get much information about him at all. So first thing I look up when I pick up this book is is that character. Um, and there's some pretty interesting information in the visual dictionary as far as, you know, you drop terms like the Church of the Force, things like mm-hmm. that. Where is Are those things that we're going to learn more about as more of these stories come out? Or is it just kind of, you know, we threw, you guys threw that term out, but we're not going to really, you know, hear much more about it? No, that's, that's a, an idea that's – so in that specific case of Church of the Force is an idea that's been percolating sort of in the background of, of Lucasfilm projects for quite some time. It just hasn't had a place to surface. In fact, George Lucas first came up with the idea of what it is. Uh, when he was developing the live action TV series years and years ago. So that's an idea that, you know, we, we all knew this notion that there is during the time of the empire, an underground church that um, venerated the Jedi or venerated their ideals, but you don't, you didn't have to be force sensitive to be part of it. It's, it's the equivalent of basically the, the lay person's spirituality in the universe. Uh, And we love that idea. And, and early on in the development of the force awakens, um, Lore Santeca was described as a priest, but we haven't really had much religion expressed in Star Wars. So we c- connected his priest quality, uh, which kind of fell by the wayside in, as the story developed. But we connected that original identica- identification of the character with the old Church of the Force backstory. And though he doesn't really seem like a priest now, he's more of an adventurer. Uh, the idea that he has a spiritual foundation was just, it felt like, no, that's, that's the character. Let's keep that in there. Is there any more you can tell us about Lor Santeca, or is that something we'll find out about as the story moves forward? Because it kind of seems like he was just there, and now he's gone, and we have what we've got in the Visual Dictionary. But there's obviously more to him. He was old, so he'd been around for a while. <laughs> yeah, and the book makes a point of saying that he, he was around during the Clone Wars and saw the Jedi in their prime. And, and he believed the Jedi as opposed to the lies that the Emperor put out after uh, the fall of the Jedi. So, yeah, I don't think we're done telling uh, his story. I think one of the things that has happened, um, and it's very easy to get caught up with this notion that because Episode Seven was the first new storytelling on a particular end of the timeline uh, in a big production sort of way, uh, everyone's attention is focused to what happens after it. Um, but as you know, and, and as with like Claudia Gray's upcoming novel, we're telling stories on either end of episode seven and filling in those spaces. So even though it seems like a character's story may have ended because Laura Santeca is, is struck down, that doesn't mean we're done telling stories about these characters. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. Another big fact that I came across in this book that was a little bit surprising to me was the fact that um, Maz Kanato actually is strong in the force. Mm-hmm. And that was something that the movie kind of, I think, you know, was kind of hinting at that. But she was making it a point that, she, you know, that was that she was not a Jedi. Um, but then, you know, when you get the visual dictionary, it's like, oh, she does actually have the force. But I guess she's kind of trying to hide it. 
Well, particularly if you figure she lived through the time of the empire, so she was probably used to keeping it under her hat at at that time, since she didn't want to broadcast that kind of uh, ability. But and this is something that's happening with rebels, and and um, you know the Church of the Force is a product of that as well. The notion of taking force sensitivity and and that sort of uh, deep spirituality and spiritual connection to the universe is moving it beyond the Jedi and Sith conversation. Uh, the Jedi and Sith are just one point of view, one expression of something that's much larger than them. Uh, Clone Wars got into this space. George, by the end there, was really opening up that um, those distinctions. And so we're following that tradition by saying, you know, Maz is not Jedi, she's not Sith, but she knows the Force. I've always, even as a kid, I've kind of felt that that's probably, that that was true. Like, as a kid, I always thought Logray was a Force user, even though he doesn't know what a Jedi is or what the Force is. He just, that's just how he expresses it. I am 100% in agreement with you. And people try to tell me that Ewoks can't use the Force. And I'm like, yes, they can. They just wouldn't, they just wouldn't call it the Force. They would call it something else. It's their connection. They've got a a magical connection or not, not even magic, but like just that, that whole like kind of like sixth sense thing in our world, you know, they they refer around them. They refer to it as the spirit of the trees, and and they think that there is a, a, a night spirit that represents darkness, and it's, so it's it's the same, it's the same substance, just different labels, depending on where you go in the galaxy. And, and we got that with the Lasad episodes, where they revere the Ashla, and we all know, being Star Wars fans, that that was another term for the Force way back when. So, so mm-hmm. would you say that the uh, the Night Sisters kind of fall in that category as well, as just using the Force in a different way? I would, yeah. And to me, it's like they seem they're very connected to their own world. So it comes out of the manipulation of objects and nature found on their planet. That is how they express. Yeah, it almost seems to me that the Jedi and the Sith use the Force in a broader aspect than some of these other Force-sensitive you know, peoples throughout the galaxy that use it a little bit more in a comp packed method of things that they just know around them whereas the jedi have taken that and they sort of branch out with it to bigger things yeah i think they definitely represent the most like codified and and studied version of the force so they could probably do more things with it or or they they do more of uh well obviously they do more of the things that we recognize as jedi abilities um but like could yoda do what mother talzin does uh, probably if she if he studied with with the night sisters and understood what they were capable of maybe but like not off the bat necessarily so did you have a particular character or page or layout that was really fun for you and that you were looking forward to writing in this book the kylo ren lightsaber spread i i knew the second that first trailer came out and people started you know, debating furiously as to the merits of that lightsaber and how it functions. It's like, yeah, we're going to, we're going to open up that lightsaber and explain to the world what it is they're looking at. So, um, that was a situation where we had John Goodson from ILM, a model maker and a digital artist here. He's been here for ages. He's awesome guy. He, he built the special constructions for this book, which included the inside of Kylo's lightsaber, uh, the inside of BB-8's head, and the inside of a TIE fighter pilot helmet. So he took a crack at what that lightsaber could look like, and his first version that he had wasn't quite right. Um, and I gave him some notes, and he, and he ended up being the version that we see in the finished book. 
So, because I know a lot of people, they talk about the cross guard part Mm -hmm. of the lightsaber. And in the book, it talks about that it's a cracked kyber crystal. Is it because of the cracked kyber crystal that he has the cross guards? Or is it designed to have the cross guards regardless? The The best way to think of those cross guards as they are vents that help stabilize the power of the central crystal. So it's almost like an overpowered lightsaber that needs to have these side vents in order to balance things out. The fact that Kylo's is cracked is not what gives the cross guard effect. It's what gives the sort of ragged blade effect. Yes. Okay. So one can infer that Kylo tried to build a particular type of lightsaber and damaged his in the process because he isn't at that level of training required to build what he was attempting to build. Right. And that would make sense. I mean, I think it goes along with his personality. He's very volatile. He's sort of shaky in where he's at currently with what we've seen in episode seven. So I think that his lightsaber matches, which yeah, makes I, it appropriate. I think in many ways, it's a metaphor for him. Like he's a cracked source of power, right? It'll be interesting to learn if this is his first lightsaber or if this is just his first as a bad guy. <laughs> right. I'm sure these these are things that we will find out. But um, did you drop any Easter eggs in the book for us? Anything that you know you kind of maybe we didn't didn't notice? Uh, absolutely. I mean, it's <laughs> it's part of this thing is you're against the the crunch of deadlines. So sometimes you put things in to amuse yourself as you, as you keep working forward, and and sometimes it's a little bit more of a, a playful nod to something else that's happening in the production. Um, you know, JJ was interviewed about the character of Elo Asti and where that name came from. And so this story has been out there that it was actually, he didn't coin the name, but someone in the, in the creature or the costume department coined the name because it was, they knew he was a Beastie Boys fan and Elo Asti is a reference to Hello Nasty, a, a Beastie Boys title. So, so I made a point of taking every instance of that particular alien species that's in the book and naming them after a Beastie Boys song. Uh, some people have already picked up on that, but uh, if you take a close look at all the Abedino races um, pictured in the book, all the faces and characters of that species, there is a Beastie Boys reference in their name. Some are a bit more obvious than others, but it's in there. <laughs> That's awesome. I love that kind of stuff. In the past, there have been um, additions to some of these essential guides or things like this, uh, where you guys would post it directly to StarWars.com. Um, now that we know that General Hux had a cat, <laughs> will, will that be added to a, an additional addendum? Somebody on the internet has already done it, which just amuses me endlessly. Somebody did a their version of the visual guide layout. Really? And Yeah, and they took a photo of an orange cat, probably the one I posted as a joke, and uh, have, has may, have given Millicent a two-page spread. So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there you go, free of charge. Look it up online. I'm sure it's like Tumblr has, has uh, done every shape and variation of this thing that's possible. So. I and love that. entertainment. I love that so much. So before we finish this up, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about another property that I know you love. Why do you love the Transformers as much as you do? Because I love them too. (laughs) They came out at that absolute sweet spot when uh, I was nine years old when they came out. And I, they were like, you graduated essentially from Star Wars toys to the next big thing because 
you know, that, that was your childhood. You moved on your Star Wars toys. You kind of put them away for a while because Hasbro was on the scene with both G.I. Joe and Transformers. And it was like, you know, now as an adult, I'm able to look back and recognize all this sort of branding synergy and all this stuff that people talk about when it comes to marketing that that this whole thing was calculated to get the result that they did get from me. But as a kid, it was all about really super cool looking characters, toys that were uh, just fascinating to play with. And the cartoon series just had such great voice work. Um, and it's funny cause like you look at it now and they had to, they had to move a lot of product in those cartoons. Like we had a cast of 18 Autobots in the first year and like, you know, uh, eight or nine Decepticons, and just in the first year alone, whereas most animated shows generally kind of focus on maybe five characters at most. Mm -hmm. And all of those characters had to have distinct personalities and distinct voices so that kids would instantly read who they were. And uh, that totally worked because everything just kind of sticks out in your mind. You knew that Hound sounded a certain way, Ironhide sounded a certain way, Ratchet sounded a certain way. Like, you instantly recognize those characters. And I think it was the same formula that, like, Pokemon hit on after that you know because let's give you a wide assortment of characters with are instantly identifiable memorable name memorable traits boom you're off to the races and, yeah. and transformers hit that for me only with pokemon it was like 180 of them or something <laughs> yeah exactly they were able to push it even further and you know but like it was it grew every year and by the second season of transformers you had another dozen autobots thrown into the mix and you had more decepticons thrown into the mix and and I've talked about this before, like what what was ultimately a callous marketing decision uh, that was put into the lead in from season two to season three, or rather series two and series three of the toy line was, hey, we're discontinuing all of the series one toys. So uh, let's get them out of our storytelling so we could concentrate on the new stuff. And so they ended up killing all of the 1984, oh, the majority of the 1984 run Transformers. And what was done for like the most, like the non-story driven reasons ended up making a really powerful story. Because nowadays no one would dream of killing off their, their main character uh, so early in the run. Uh, but they did it because, you know, the lead times in animation and toy lines were such that nobody knew that Optimus Prime would be this beloved figure. So by the time they killed him off in 86, they had no Everybody idea what the outpouring was. Devastated. Right, what the outpouring was. So it's this, it's this interesting... Like, there was a lot of interesting serendipity in the development of Transformers that was, you know, they did it for certain reasons and it ended up making some really memorable experiences at, uh, for, for a generation at a very formative age. So, yeah, they're, they're definitely, like, they're, I, I spent many years of my childhood lovingly playing with these characters, so. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge Transformers person, too, and I read the Transformers comics even still today, and I collect Transformers stuff, and I have all of her universe Transformers stuff and everything. Uh, are you an Autobot or a Decepticon? <laughs> I would be on the Autobot side, I think. But I love IDW's comics, especially what James Roberts has been doing yes. in the series. And in fact, what I find interesting about what James has done is he's really made the distinction between Autobot and Decepticon kind of meaningless because it's you, you get a sense that these are just individual characters that get swept up onto certain sides of the war, certain side of politics. When you when you put it aside and, you, and they have to deal with one another, it becomes less about what badge they wear and more about what they carry within them. 
And that is so surprising to people when you try to explain that this comic is so nuanced and so character-driven for people who may only have familiarity with the toy line or the live-action movies, which are really more about spectacle and action and, and less about character. So um, me going on and on and saying, no, I'm telling you, this is one of the best comics out there right now. You should read it. Uh, I absolutely mean it. So don't put, put aside any prejudices you may have regarding Transformers and pick that up. So to pull this background to Star Wars, do you like the Star Wars Transformer toys? Uh, you know, I never really, as I said, I wasn't a collector, and I never thought that it lived up to its particular potential. In my mind, it would have been more powerful because, like, there was no real story behind them. It was like, for some reason, Anakin was flying in a uh, Jedi starfighter that transformed into a giant version of Anakin. Like, there was no story there, right? <laughs> I know. <laughs> I, I would rather have seen a hybridization of okay, if Transformer characters lived in the Star Wars universe, what would they scan and then become? Like, like to me, uh, Anakin's Jedi Starfighter should be like Hot Rod or Jetfire or an appropriate yeah. character and not you know, some weird. Yeah. So that was, that's, anyway, that was my thinking. <laughs> no, I had to ask you about it because we really haven't had a whole ton of time to talk about it. And Aaron knows, like, I love Transformers. I would love, like, Star Wars Transformer crossover deal. And I know it would never happen, <laughs> but I would, like, I would love that. Well, I, but even on a product line, I'd love that. Forget about the story, but just on a product line, do it, but have, retain the characters in them. So, um, so yeah, so it's, it's, I, I'd rather have, like, you know, the, the, the three TIE fighters that chase Luke at the end, like, have a, a trio of TIE fighters uh, with the two flanking fighters being uh, Skywarp and Thundercracker and the central one being Starscream, you know. That would be cool. <laughs> You've thought about this. I have. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know as a member of the uh, story group, you're very aware of all the different stories that are going on, you know, novels, comics, um, is there anything in particular as a fan that you've kind of taken an interest in that you're actually following, um, you know, a book or a series of comics? Outside of Star Wars? No, within the within the new Star Wars stuff. Well, by virtue of what we do, like I, I have to be invested in all of this. So I, there's nothing that I don't read that we're doing, unless it's like sort of novelty books that fall on the fringes and, and don't have any strong story component to it. Uh, but to me, I mean, it's been a blessing because this is stuff that I would do anyway. And, and so, um, you know, before I even worked, before I worked in the story group, I worked in the online group and there was no real reason for me to read all the books. Like it wasn't a mandate of my job, but I did it anyway, just cause I loved it. And I became sort of this, an early reader of that EU stuff. And, and they made sure that I would, you know, read stuff or advise, be in the capacity to advise on that material. Uh, so this really just formalized that relationship. And I got to say, I mean, I, I've been, I've been loving all the stuff as it's really come together. Especially uh, as as the movies that are in production have really started to take more and more shape, the books and the and the publishing is able to build off that in in more meaningful ways. Um, you know, early on, we were in a bit of a holding pattern um, as we made the transition because we just didn't have as much insight into everything that was in development because it was an early production. Uh, but even that said, we got some, some interesting things out at that time. So, um, for instance, I, I thought a new Dawn did a great job of introducing Hera and Kanan, and that was its sort of main thrust of, of tie into rebels. Um, but we had sort of things that were more experimental, more out there, like, uh, 
dark disciple doesn't really tie into anything that we have doing, but we thought it was a great opportunity to find a home for those Clone Wars scripts. Now you're more likely to find something. And, and if you don't understand what the connection is to other content right away, you know, by the end of the year, you'll be able to look at it differently and go, oh, I understand why they did that story because it actually set up X. So there's a lot of that going on now. Do you think that we will ever see maybe an Ahsoka book or even better, an Ewok book? (laughs) (laughs) I will say that, uh, you know, I'm going to out Dave Filoni and that he has interests on both fronts. Um, (laughs) Just combine it as one big novel. (laughs) Yeah, Ahsoka Ewok book. (laughs) We've had a lot of interesting conversation about Ewoks, but whether or not that actually is going to go anywhere, I don't know. Just know that there are fans of Ewoks here. Um, cause we think they're cool, but Ahsoka, I mean, Ahsoka right now is in rebels. So she's very much a character that's, that's in play as far as her, her narrative space goes. But, you know, that said, uh, you know, she's, she's, she has a huge following and I think Dave really appreciates that following so that if an opportunity comes to tell a new story that adds more light to her and, and Dave sees value in that, we're, we're definitely going to be open to that. Well, so, Lots of people would like to read a story about her. <laughs> Just saying. <Okay. laughs> I like the books that tie into Rebels because A New Dawn was amazing for it tying into Rebels the way that it did. It was just perfect. Yeah, it's it's more like just finding those opportunities. Like A New Dawn really came about when we realized we're never going to have a flashback that tells you how uh, Hera and Kanan met. Like it's just not the format of the show. They may reference something, but it's ne- we're never going to see it. And so it's like, well, let's let's give a place to tell that story. Um, so a lot of it is driven like like what's what what opportunities are there in what we're doing, and what what would we want to read, you know? Yeah. So can you tell us anything about the Star Wars propaganda book that you're going to be working on? I just saw the initial layouts, so it's written. Uh, the art is coming in, and I'm writing uh, captions to it. Um, I probably. I won't go too much into it because it's very early. I mean, it's, it's I guess it sort of was announced. It showed up on a catalog page somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but what I can say, I'll, I'll give you this much. Uh, it's written in universe. Yes. So it's written, oh my God. <laughs> by, it's written by a, a scholar of galactic history. And, uh, and this person is offering their perspective on the art that they have witnessed throughout the various wars. That is... Sounds amazing. I love in-universe books. They're my favorite. Favorite, favorite, favorite. Yeah, I've, I've got a – I love it, and, and um, we found a particular voice for this character uh, that I enjoyed writing, and I think people will – hopefully people will enjoy reading it as in addition to looking at the amazing art that's in there. Great. So is there anything else you have coming – out or around that you want to tell people about or where can people find you online if they want to talk to you about star wars um crown colors things like that (laughs) i am or canyons uh i am well i'm on twitter at pablo hidalgo so i've been back on twitter because uh i lost my old handle long story but i didn't want i I wanted to to have a twitter account that no one could take away from me and i didn't want anyone taking my name so i'm back on there um i'll be appearing at um, the the Salt Lake City uh, Fan X um, that's coming up at the end of March, so I'll be there doing a presentation on the Visual Dictionary as well as doing a few uh, more a few other panels, and I may and this is 
still in development. I may be at C2E2 as well, um, but but we'll see. But I will, I, 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 I'm ninety percent sure going to be at Celebration Europe. Um, so that you know, hopefully for all the fans making a trek overseas or who are situated there and can take advantage of it being in their neck of the woods. Hopefully I'll be able to run into people that you don't see all the time. Um, and, uh, and I, I'm looking forward to that. So. Cool. Yeah. I enjoyed our, our crown color conversation. I, I really like Kylo red. If I That's was good. That's a, a good one. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much, Paulo, for being on the show. Finally. And hopefully we get a chance to talk further down the line when things come out. Cool. Well, great. It's, this is Thanks for having me. I'm glad you like the Visual Dictionary. And, uh, yeah, next time something comes out, I'll be happy to talk about it. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode where we just talked to Pablo for about an hour about anything and everything, kind of. Did you have fun talking to him? Yeah. Awesome conversation. Some really cool things, I think, that uh... – that I learned that I didn't already know. And that's kind of what I wanted talking to Pablo Hidalgo. I thought he would, you know, he has insight that none of us have, you know, he, he gets to see behind the curtain a little bit more than the rest of us. So I was very happy with that interview and uh, some cool transformer stuff. I didn't know I learned. (laughs) Yeah. And we just want to let all of our listeners know, I'm sure some of you were probably expecting us to ask things related to the story group, but we just didn't feel that it was an appropriate way to go as He's more here to sort of talk about the book that he's written and stuff like that. And we're just treating him like a normal author. And we know he knows things. And we know you guys want to know things about what is canon and what isn't canon. But that might be for another time and another place whenever it's appropriate. But we like to make sure our guests are comfortable. So um, we didn't feel like the story group was the way to go this time around. Even though we have burning questions about the story group also. (laughs) (laughs) Lots of them, actually. So until next time, you can get in touch with us in between shows. You can email us at starwarsbookworms at gmail.com. And please send us an email because if you do, we will read it on the air. Also, on Twitter, we are at SWBookworms. And you can also like us on Facebook. Just search Star Wars Bookworms. You'll find us. And you can leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, A lot of you have been doing that. We really appreciate it. If you get a chance, you enjoy our show, head on over to iTunes. Leave us a nice five-star review. You can find Teresa on Twitter and Instagram at IceColdPenguin. I'm at A.V. Goins. And until next time, you want to say it? You never get to say it. Keep on reading. And may the force be with you. (laughs) So I wanted to ask you this, but I didn't want to ask you on air because I just need to know for myself. Is Lego Star Wars TV show going to matter as far as any kind of canon story, or is it just for fun? It's a bit of both. I mean, uh, whether the the question you have to ask is whether or not there are flesh and blood equivalents of these characters in the Star Wars universe where people don't look like Lego. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And that's, I don't know. I mean, I think we're, we're writing it so that it is, you know, as much as possible, it's a contiguous self-contained story uh but if something resonates it's it's, you know we'd love to be able to to refer to it or bring it into its own uh it it, bring it into the other storytelling that we're telling so it's definitely occupies its own universe it's the lego star wars universe um but you never know (laughs) yeah we were just aaron and i were debating it back and forth and i was just like 
It has to be. I don't care if it's in Lego form because the Lego <laughs> stories are some of my favorite ever. I love Lego stuff. It's the funniest and the best. It's, it, it is a lot of fun. And, and what's different about the, the Freemaker series is that it's not intended to be a parody of an existing story. Yeah. So, so it's got a little bit more narrative meat than some of the stuff has had in the past. Uh, but it's definitely kind of its own universe. But that, that said, there's nothing to stop us from taking the characters or taking a situation and say, yeah, maybe the Rebels will encounter that. Or maybe it'll show up in a Marvel comic or you never know. So hmm. we're keeping all options open right now. Cool. I like it. 